0: I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 5, and we're continuing our study of this wonderful, masterful sermon that Jesus preached very early in his ministry. It was about one year after Jesus began preaching, uh, it was after his baptism in Judea, that he went back to the area of his hometown, Nazareth, and he began preaching around the region of Galilee. And as we studied in an earlier message, uh, Jesus wasn't welcome in Nazareth. In fact, when he went back there, he was so despised, his preaching was so hated, that when he went into the synagogue to preach, they cast him out and they took him up on a mountain and they wanted to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And that's when Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. But the rest of the region of Galilee was more receptive to his message. He healed people. He did many miracles. He, he preached, and there were great crowds that followed him wherever he went. And it was then that Jesus gathered this great crowd on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he began to preach this sermon that's known as the Sermon on the Mount. He gathered his disciples on this hillside, and there followed there a great multitude, and The people sat down, and he began to teach them about life in the kingdom of God. He began with eight sayings. We call them the Beatitudes. They are simply known as blessings. And he taught the people about what it was like to live in his kingdom. And as he did, everything seemed to be upside down. The blessings did not seem to meet the demands. Poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, mercy... And especially this one, when he began to teach about persecution, how can you be happy when you're persecuted? How could you be happy when there's strife and division even in your own family? That was very difficult. And yet Jesus said, this has to be the attitude of your heart. It must be the attitude of your life if you are going to be a part of my kingdom. And then in the middle of all that, there were those two Beatitudes... Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, and also blessed are the pure in heart. All of the Beatitudes are defining, but none more so than those two particular ones, because a change has to take place in the heart before any of these Beatitudes can become real. And so simply put, there is no one who can live in Christ's kingdom who is not born again. You have to be a believer. You must have the righteousness of Christ given to you by your faith. Now, that sort of sets the stage for what comes in this next section of Jesus' teachings. It was necessary for him to speak those Beatitudes first, because what comes after this can only be done by those who have those certain characteristics, those very things that he talked about in the first part of the sermon. So now he turns his attention away from just simply speaking to the multitude. Now the attention focuses upon his disciples. This was a mixed multitude. There were some in the crowd that were saved, most notably those were Jesus' disciples and some others. But really, most of the people weren't quite ready. They came there for other reasons. They came for the miracles and things that Jesus did. There was sort of a glimmer of hope that they had that Jesus could change things for them. But really, all in all, they weren't true disciples. And it wasn't very long that After they looked at all the teachings of Jesus and discovered how demanding that Jesus really was, they just weren't interested anymore. So we turn our attention to the next part of this sermon. Uh, Jesus addressed his disciples with some very pointed words about their responsibility of living in this world around lost people. How are we to conduct ourselves as we live in this world? Now, we're going to read a few verses today, and we're going to think on the subject, Savory Saints. I'd like you to stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, and today we start at verse number 13. Matthew 5, verse number 13. Jesus says, "'Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men.'" Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for those who have come to hear your word. We just ask you, Lord, to give us understanding. Help us to know how Christians are to act in a very evil world, what we're supposed to be in testimony for you. Blessed in this message today, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our subject this morning is Savory Saints. Next week we'll come back and we'll talk about Shining Saints. And these two titles come from these few verses that we've read about the testimony of believers in a very dark unsavory world. It's really interesting when you look at the teachings of Jesus, how he took some very simple things and he taught with those some very profound principles. Jesus taught in parables, and those were just simply stories that illustrated a point about living in his kingdom. One type of parable that Jesus gave is called a similitude. This is when Jesus said that you're like something. It's different from the longer story parables that Jesus spoke, but really these are just very simple, short statements that are just comparisons. And in these verses, Jesus gives us two similitudes. He says, you are like salt and you are like light. Now today we're going to consider that first similitude, you are like salt, or as he says here, ye are the salt of the earth. Now I want to begin speaking to you today about the fundamental problem of the world the fundamental problem of the world. I want you to look back, if you would please, there in chapter 5 to that last beatitude Jesus gave. Uh, Verses 10 and 11, here Jesus says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, those two verses begin to reveal the fundamental problem that we face as Christians in this world. Whenever a Christian begins to display Christ-like characteristics, that becomes a source of irritation to unbelievers. That's because a Christian life is an exposing life. Godly character is just like shining a light on ungodly character. And just as Jesus said in John chapter 3, those who are in the world, those who are not saved, who don't know Christ, they do not like to have their evil exposed. And so persecution comes as a result of having the light shown on evil. And it demonstrates in a very vivid way the fundamental problem of the world. There's something that is very wrong with this world. All of us that are saved, we know very much... We're very much aware of what it was like before we were saved. We're very much aware of what we were like before we received the mercy and the grace of God. Now, there are three very important issues that demonstrate the world's problem. Now, I think that you could say that this first one I want to give you today is really the crux of the matter. The other two flow out of this. What is the problem with the world? Well, first we can say it's the depravity of man. The very fact that Jesus said that salt is required, that you must be the salt of the earth, that shows that there's rottenness everywhere on this planet. There is sin, there is decadence, this world is polluted. And I don't necessarily mean that... Our air is polluted because of greenhouse gases that we emit and i 'm not saying there 's too much smog in the air i 'm not talking about the pollution of of rivers by industrial waste i 'm speaking about the problem of man himself there 's very there 's a very uh, bad problem in the world, much, much more serious than than our environment or anything that's taking place there. There is a problem with man himself, and man himself is really the source of all the problems that we have in the world. The issue here is sin. The issue is the depravity of man. Jesus addressed in these Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the pure in heart And that is an indication to us that there are those who are not pure in heart. And the problem is much more serious than a neighbor that lives next door to you that's mean. It's much more serious than the problem of just people that are in jails and prisons today. The problem is worldwide. It's in every place upon this earth. It's in every country. It's in every city. It's in every neighborhood. Folks, it is in every household. It's in your household. It's in your life. Sin is pervasive, it is infectious, it is a deadly virus that affects every person in the world today. It's worse than swine flu, it's worse than cancer, it's worse than AIDS or any other disease that you can think of. Now there must be some salt in the world. This means there must be some Christians that are out there trying to influence the world and trying to change this pervasive problem that we find everywhere. But the problem is heightened, unfortunately, by what we call, quote-unquote, Christian churches. Popular preaching today doesn't want to deal with the issue of sin, doesn't want to attack the problem. In fact, the most popular preacher in America today ignorantly proclaims people already feel bad about themselves. I don't want to make them feel worse, so I'm not going to talk about their sin. I don't want to tell people that they're sinners. Folks, that man is not salt and he is not light. He's not interested in what Jesus says in this sermon because the very fact that Jesus told his disciples they must be salt was to let them know they must do something to arrest this horrible problem of sin that infects every soul. And we can't We can't do anything with the problem. We can't expose the problem. We can't help people unless we're willing to preach about it. We can't prescribe a cure for people who don't even realize there is a problem. And so the depravity of man, this inherent sinfulness of man, the fact that all people have been born in sin, that is the real root of the world's problem. Now, out of that problem comes the decay of society. Out of this problem of the depravity of man comes the decay of the society. As most of you know, I was born in Kentucky. And until 12 years ago, I lived my entire, entire life in the Bible Belt. Most of the people that I lived around were religious people. There were a lot of people that went to church. All of my neighbors practically were Christians. They were very religious people. In fact, the subject or the subdivision, I should say, that I lived in Uh, the person who helped develop that subdivision uh, was a Christian. And he built a lot of houses there, and he sold houses to many Christian people. So you could drive down the street, and you could spot the houses that he built because they were the ones that had a cornerstone that had a Scripture verse in it. I mean, just just like you put your house number on your house, this man put Scripture verses in a cornerstone right there on the house. And so people could see that the ones who lived in that house were Christian people. Within just a five-mile radius of my house, there were over 80 churches. And at least 10 of those churches had attendance between two and 6,000 people. Now, that's where I lived. That's how I grew up. I came to California 12 years ago, and folks, was it ever different And I I suppose that the most eye-opening thing to me was the extreme wickedness that I saw here and the fact that people just thought it was normal. This is the way that we live our lives. This is the way we do things. Now, in Kentucky, we didn't have sinners. Uh, You know, really, though, uh, thinking about, though, I, I think that it was actually worse there than it was here. That might surprise you. Because with all of the churches that we have, you would expect that the moral compass, there would be a moral compass that would keep things straight. But things just kept getting worse and worse. The whole society is depraved. And rather than think that, well, there's plenty of good influence out there. I mean, there's lots of things that are going on that are good. really, the thing we ought to be asking is, why aren't things worse than they are? And the reason they aren't is because of just simply the grace of God. God just restrains some of the rampant evil of the world. If you look back in history, you'll find that at the end of the 19th century, people uh, became convinced that things were getting better. Technology was advancing. Uh, factories were being automated. There was increased education. Socially, it seemed like things were improving. And so people began to think, well, it's possible, it really is possible that we can just get rid of wars. We can eliminate poverty. There'll, there'll just be peace and harmony everywhere. People thought that with Darwinism and the theory of evolution that with man continually evolving upward, then the ultimate outcome must be that man is getting better. And we were getting rid of, rid of all these animal impulses that we have. We're evolving upward, and so we're going to develop a creature, a man, that's going to do what's best for all people. Take a look around you. We keep getting smarter and smarter. We are more technologically advanced than ever before, and where has it taken us? Really, the only thing that it's done, folks, is to increase our acumen for evil. We're just much better than evil than we used to be before. We've learned how to sin in bigger and better and bolder ways. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to protect yourself, what you did, you just went out and bought a padlock, put it on your house at night, and you felt safe. Protect yourself that way. Now we have computers, and we do our banking online, we do our buying online, so a thief doesn't even bother to come to your house anymore. He just sits in the comfort of his own home and sits there and steals your passwords and drains your bank account. We have come a long way, haven't we? What we've done is to improve our ability to sin. With technology and education, with evolution, we think, from monkey to a man, why haven't we solved our problems? Why, why is there still an issue of crime? You know, I remember when they used to advertise cigarettes on TV. You remember this commercial? Uh, There was a cigarette called Virginia Slims. I don't know if they still have that today, but they marketed this cigarette to women. And and if you remember the advertising slogan, the slogan was, You've come a long way, baby. And it had sort of a double meaning to it. Those cigarettes were longer and they were thinner. And uh, they marketed it to women, and they said, You've come a, a long way. And they also meant by that that, Well, Smoking has become much more acceptable for women today, much more socially acceptable. And so they would really, really come a long way. You know, that's just typical of the evolutionary mindset. You've come a long way. What you've done, you've stopped eating bananas and swinging by your tail. And now instead of smoking short cancer sticks, we've got these long ones for you. So who's smarter, a monkey or a man? And we wonder about that. You know, evolution is a joke, folks. Things are not getting better Man is not elevating himself. What he's done, he's figured out a way that he could put sin on steroids. That's all that he's done. Now, out of man's fundamental problem comes not only the decay of society, not only comes man's depravity and the decay of society, but also the delusion of change. The delusion is that we can take sinful man, this one who is depraved in his mind and his conscience and his will, One who's depraved in every fiber of his being. And we think that here is the person who can fix things. I mean, who is more deluded than to think that rotten man who is polluted with sin, who is under God's dreadful curse because of his sin, how could we possibly think that men are ever going to fix anything? How are you going to get something that's pure and holy and clean out of something that is filthy, rotten, and vile? And that's the way the Bible describes us. Jesus said it this way a little bit later in this very same sermon. He said, a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now, that's the great fallacy of preachers who refuse to preach about sin. I mean, they keep telling you that you can become a better you. All that you really need to do, you just need to think positively. You need to try real hard. Put your mind to this. And you'll be able to change. As Job says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Jesus said it another way in Matthew chapter 12. He said that when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return to my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation." What Jesus is speaking of there is the value of self-reformation. Trying to clean yourself up, trying to be something better than what you really are. And he says that you are just deceiving yourself. All that you're doing is making your heart harder and harder against the gospel of Christ. Man cannot change on his own. And we have these thousands of years of human history behind us to prove that we cannot change. Now you would think that with 2,000 years since Christ preached this sermon that we've read it, that we've put it into practice, and things have become different. But have we actually done that? I mean, When you read the Sermon on the Mount, how much closer are we really to putting the sermon on the mount into effect. How much closer are we to Matthew 5:44, where Jesus says, "Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which spitefully use you and persecute you." No one can do that who is not pure in heart. And so that's why Jesus turned to the disciples. These are men with changed hearts. Where is there a society on earth that has ever been able to do what Jesus says here without Christ? There is none. And so you see, this is the fundamental problem with the world. There is depravity, there is decay, there is delusion. Well, now Jesus says, you're my disciples. And so you need to do something about this. So that leads us to the second part of the message, which is the functional purpose of a Christian. There's a fundamental problem with the world, and there is a functional purpose for Christians. What is our function? Now, we live in the world. We can't escape it. God's left us here for something. Why didn't God save us and just take us to heaven? I mean, we're still left here. Well, Jesus gives a very simple illustration of our purpose. He says, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, the Beatitudes were given to show us that there's something very different about Christians. If you're a Christian, you're not like the world. These eight sayings that Jesus gave were to differentiate the blessed person from the person who's not blessed, the person who's not a child of God. Now, otherwise, Jesus would have said, all of you are blessed. Just go do whatever it is that you do. You have my blessing to do what you want. But Jesus didn't do that. I mean, the blessed person is a very different person. It's not like the world. He brings something different in the world. Salt is different. It's not the same in substance as what you put it on, or else you'd never know it was there. Salt is a savory substance. If you've ever been on a salt diet, you know that food tastes differently when it has salt on it and when it doesn't. Salt improves the taste of food. And so a Christian in the world should improve the world. You are essentially different from the world. There's a different quality about you. The summation of what Jesus is saying here is that a Christian is to be a person of influence. He brings a different quality to the world so that he influences people positively in a godly direction. Now, Bible interpreters have suggested many different interpretations of Jesus' statement, Ye are the salt of God. Of the earth, I want to give you today just three of those interpretations, and I really think that there's validity in all three of these. I think that we can take truth from all of these, and we could say that this is how a Christian must be. He must be like salt. But before I do that, I need to discuss with you for just a moment the value of salt. Why was salt so valuable? And when you understand this, then you understand why Jesus used this and how that Christians really are truly valuable to the world. Now, we, we we may be hated, we're despised, we're persecuted, shamefully treated, but Christians really do have great value for the world. Salt was such a valuable commodity in the ancient world that sometimes they would use salt like money. They would pay people in salt. For instance, a sometimes Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And so when you had a soldier that was not valiant in the fight, when he didn't live up to expectations, they would say, well, he's not worth his salt. In other words, he's not worth what he was paid in salt, and that's where we get the saying. The Greeks and the Romans considered that salt was divine. Without any refrigeration, they had... This substance that could preserve food. So they put it on meat to preserve it. And it was something so different, so out of the ordinary. It was a substance not like anything that they'd seen before. And so they began to think that salt was something that was given by the gods. I mean, there was nothing mortal about it. This had to be given by the gods. Salt was so valuable that it was used to ratify contracts. You ever heard the saying or seen people say something about throwing salt over their shoulder? Where that came from, was that was the way that you ratified a contract. Salt was also a way that you submitted friendships. Whenever your enemy came and sat down with you to eat and he ate your salt, then you were obliged to make him your friend. So salt was very important to the people, and it was very valuable. And Jesus used the illustration of salt because these people would get it. It's different, it's valuable, and a Christian living in the world is to be different. He's to be valuable. Now, how do people interpret this then? What qualities of salt make it like a Christian? Well, it comes down to influence. It has to do with the way that we influence others. Now, first, there is the influence of purity. At home, and I'm sure you have the same thing at home, you have salt and pepper shakers. I always like the clear ones, and that's because I can easily tell the difference between them. Salt is that white, Crystal that's in there, and the pepper is brown, so I can very easily tell the difference between them. Salt is white. White symbolizes purity. In the sixth beatitude, Jesus spoke about purity. The Bible uses white as a symbol of righteousness, and the Bible often speaks of white in that way. We see many times that in the book of Revelation that it talks about the righteousness of saints and it talks about white. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ is dressed in white. Revelation 19 verse 8 says, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. In the tabernacle worship in the Old Testament, there was a white linen fence that surrounded the entire tabernacle enclosure. That white linen fence was symbolic of the righteousness of Christ. And what it said, that is, if you want to come to God, if you want to be in the place where you are in fellowship with God, then you must come through the righteousness of Christ. And that was depicted by that white fence that surrounded the entire enclosure. So Jesus may very well have had this on his mind. Before we can influence the world rightly, we must be pure. Our lives have to be holy and clean, we have a standard of righteousness to uphold. So that means that our speech, the way that we act, the way that we dress, all of that, our attitudes, that are to be reflective of a person who lives in Christ's righteous kingdom. And if we do otherwise, if we're something different from that, if we don't display the purity of Christ in our lives, then we do not picture Christ himself. And so Jesus may have been speaking of it in this way. That's a worthy interpretation. It has merit. We can easily see why Jesus would use it that way. But I really don't think that that's the primary thought. We have another interpretation. Next, there's the influence of pain. Salt has a quality that enables it to heal wounds. It sanitizes, but as it does, it brings pain. You ever poured salt into a wound? And we use that saying, too. Whenever someone exacerbates a bad situation, we say, well, they poured salt in the wound. It's something that's painful, produces a stinging pain. And if that's what Jesus means, then there's a stinging indictment against most preachers in most churches today. Because preachers today want to be sweet and syrupy. They want to gloss things over. I mean, they don't want to talk about sin. Don't talk about that. We want to make people feel good. If we start to preach about sin, then people will get very uncomfortable when we come to church. We don't want people to be uncomfortable. So you don't preach about adultery, you don't talk about fornication, stop preaching about lying and cheating, don't preach about smoking and drugs, don't preach about pornography, don't preach about short dresses and low tops and bikinis. Leave all of that out. If you're going to have to preach on sin, choose something that we don't do. If you're going to preach on sin, preach about something that nobody here does. So let's confine our preaching on sin to things like axe murderers. Let's talk about serial killers, because nobody here does those kinds of things. And if we preach on anything else, it's too uncomfortable. So we're okay with preaching on sin, as long as it's somebody else's sin. Leave lying and gossip, hatefulness, bitterness, immorality. Don't talk about those things. Now, I think that what Jesus meant is that we need to be salt in the wound. We need to make people painfully aware of their sin. And you know something? If you are a Christian, that's just what you are. But if you are a Sermon on the Mount type of Christian, this is what you are. You don't have a choice in the matter. Neither do you want a choice. Living for Christ will cause you to be this way. You will become a source of irritation, and it's the very kind of irritation that the world needs. They need that testimony. They need to see a difference between you and them, and they need to be pained by that. So here we have a prickly pointer about sin. And I don't mean that you're supposed to be judgmental about it. I don't mean that what you do is you go out and you get into the affairs of everybody in the church, you see what they're doing, and it's your purpose just to point out everybody's sin. It's not what he's talking about. What we're talking about here is that you glorify God in your life by presenting a contrast with the world. Your godly life will point out sin. Now, there's a lot of other variations, and I I can't even remember how many there are that people have given on interpreting what Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. But I want to give you this last one, which I think is what Jesus truly means by this saying. And this one is the influence of preservation. The influence of preservation. Now, let's go back for just a minute, and let's think about why in the ancient world that salt was valuable. Yes, there's that taste issue that changes things in that way. There are healing properties that are associated with it. But the main reason that salt was so valuable was because of its ability to preserve food. As I said, it's just like it came from the gods. They would rub that salt on the meat, and what the salt would do, it retarded the corruption of the meat. What it did, it slowed down spoiling. And when meat spoils, what do you do with it? You throw it out. What good are Christians in the world if they aren't salt? What would God do with this planet if there were no Christians? Now, God's already determined that we have to stay here for a while, so he has a plan and purpose for us. And, of course, there are many, many other people living in the world that need to hear the gospel of Christ. But while we're here, Christians left in this world, we are preserving the world from much of its corruption. We are protection for the world from falling further and further into sin. And I think there's one sense that you could say that those who are going to be saved in this world, that God has left us here as some kind of protection to retard the corruption of the world so that those people don't fall into deeper and deeper sin. A demonstration of that is what happens when Christians are taken out of the world. Read it in the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes back, Christians are going to be taken out of this world, and then what happens? It only takes seven years for the entire world to become massively corrupt. The Antichrist comes into power, and from that comes all of this unbridled decadence in the world. And then the preserving influence of God's people are also seen in this example that we have of Abraham in the Old Testament. Remember when Abraham was pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah when his nephew Lot lived there? And Abraham said to God, God was determined he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said to God, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And so Abraham says, God, now what if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Will you destroy it? And God said, I won't destroy it if you can find 50 righteous people there. Then Abraham came back, and he said, well, what about 45? And God said, well, I'm not going to destroy it for 45. Abraham said, what about 40? And then he said, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? And finally, God said, Abraham, if you can find just 10 righteous people there, I will not destroy the city. Well, he couldn't find 10. And so God rained down fire and brimstone. Now, the point of all that is that 10 righteous people could have preserved that city. I don't know how many righteous people it takes to preserve the world, but I do know this, that God is preserving the world today because there are Christians in it, because we're still here, because we're living here. God preserves the world. Here's what Peter wrote in Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, God still has some people that He wants to save, and what we are supposed to be as we live in the world, we are salt and light to draw those people in. We are here to retard the corruption of the world for as long as God sees fit to leave us here. So, what do we do? Well, we keep on preaching about sin. We keep warning the lost. We keep telling people there is a hell for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. We keep telling them there is a heaven for the redeemed who have trusted them, and that's where they're going. What do we do? We just keep living righteous and holy lives for as long as it takes. That's why we're here. Now, I want you to notice the rest of the verse. Jesus says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. In our world today, salt is basically a pure compound. Simple formula, as most of you know, is NaCl, sodium chloride. That's one atom of sodium combined with one atom of chlorine. But if you break the chemical bond, then you no longer have salt. Uh, Sodium by itself is not salty and Chlorine by itself is not salty. We don't call that salt. Chemically, it's not salt any longer. Now, in the ancient world, we're really not talking about a pure compound because many times their salt was mixed with lots of different impurities. And when it became mixed with too many impurities, it would begin to lose its saltiness. Now, they still called it salt, but it really wasn't salty any longer. So what they did is they would take that kind of salt and they would just throw it out. They throw it out like on the road or on the paths where they walked, and they would just trample on it like they would gravel. It was no good any longer. It lost its saltiness, so it was thrown out. Now, what Jesus means here is that if you stop living a righteous life, then what happens is that you will become mixed with all of these impurities, and your testimony will be ruined. You're no good anymore. You've been mixed with so many impurities that you're not salt anymore. You're not salty. And so what you have become is a useless Christian. And there are a lot of useless Christians. And by useless, I mean they are no good for the salvation of lost people because they have no testimony, and they are no good for the people of God and the church because they harm new Christians. They present a bad influence on them. And so they become a stumbling block. And Jesus says, a Christian who has come to that place that has all these impurities, when there's sin in your life, when the testimony is ruined, you are no good to me any longer. So they hinder the Lord's work, good for nothing, and they're to be cast out as objects of content. Now here's where we need to bring the sermon really down to a close and an application to all of us that are in this building. We're talking about influence. How do you influence influence others? If you evaluate your life, if you take inventory of your life, how are you really influencing others? What about your family, your relatives? What about church? What about where you work? What about where you go to school? How do you really influence people? I mean, are there people in those places that can actually say, that person has influenced me with their testimony to live for Christ? Or for the lost person, that person has has influenced me with their testimony that I want to be like that. I want to see what they have. I want, to, I want to have what they have in their heart. I want the joy that they have. I want the smile on their face in the midst of all the pain and persecution and trouble that goes on when family is dying, when there's sickness, when all of this Christians are happy. I want that. I want that feeling. I want to know what it's like. Are you influencing people in that way? Now, let me close with this last thought for you today, and this is the imperative. The imperative is, you are it. Now, maybe you are a conceited person, and that's what you always think. I'm it. Well, if you're a Christian, there is a sense in which that's true. Jesus said, you're it. He said, you are the salt of the earth. That pronoun there, you or ye, is actually emphatic in the original language. It's just like saying... Jesus says, you are it. You're the only ones. There's nobody else for you but you. I don't have anybody else to be salt. I don't have anybody else to do this. You are it. It's an imperative. And if you don't do it, if you're not salt, then the world dies and goes to hell. Jesus is the one who left you here to do this job. And if you don't do it, friend, who will? Who's going to reach your family? Who's going to reach your friends? Who's going to slow down this world that is ever quickening its pace towards its destruction. The world is on a rapid pace to destruction. Who's going to slow it down? If we don't do it, nobody will. And so what do we do? We just keep inventing all of these different refined methods of sinning, of of doing the very same sins, really, folks, that cause God to send a flood upon the world and to destroy it all. Now, the question is, where is there another Noah today? Are you going to be another Noah that gives the world some more time to repent and come to Jesus Christ? If you are not salt, there is simply nobody to do it. Friends, we is all there is. That is it. If we don't do it, nobody will, and we are good for nothing but to be stepped on by the world. Now, they might do it anyway. Well, let's not give them a reason to. Let's be savory saints. Let's add the right kind of flavoring in a world that just simply tastes so bad. Jesus says, you, ye, are the salt of the earth. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to apply what's been said today. There's no one else to do the job that you've left us to do. Certainly the world is not going to point anyone to Christ. to lost people are not going to come on their own. It's not in the heart of man to do it. But Lord, you've left us here with the gospel of Jesus Christ to be salt to people, to teach them, to show them the way of faith, the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that every Christian here today would look at their lives, take that inventory, and just measure it and see how do they really influence people. Is it in a positive way? Or is it in a negative way? Lord, we ever want to be people that bring others to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. I pray, Lord, that you might speak to someone here today who doesn't know you as Savior. Uh, None of the things that we've talked about can be put into practice by those who aren't believers. And the only way that a person can know heaven, can meet God face to face, is through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Draw someone to the cross today that they might see that and believe in you. For every Christian here today, help us to be salt, help us to be light in the world. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.